0: What do you think of when you hear heroes of the Christian faith? Does anyone in particular come to your mind when you think of heroes of the Christian faith? And if so, why? What makes that person a hero of the faith? I think one of the benefits of remembering the heroes of the faith is that their example encourages us to be faithful, encourages us to keep going encourages us to serve the Lord in all things. And the author of Hebrews understood this. We're doing a sermon series going through the book of Hebrews, and the main message of Hebrews is hold fast to Jesus Christ and his gospel because Jesus is superior, far better than anyone or anything else. Specifically, he is far better, far greater than all of the Old Testament uh, practices, laws, priesthood, everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus and finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Therefore, hold fast to Jesus, don't give up, persevere, and endure. That's the main thrust of the book of Hebrews. And in chapter 11, we're going to see that the author provides this list of heroes of the faith, commendable examples of brothers and sisters in the faith who persevered and endured hardship and trial. And the example of these heroes of the faith is meant to spur us on. It's meant to encourage us in our faith. I think it is helpful for us to look at heroes of the faith both in Scripture and throughout history I'm thankful for the books that Mary Lynn Spear puts in our bookstore downstairs, uh, biographies and stories of heroes of the faith that are meant to encourage and stir us up as we seek to follow Christ in our own time, in our own place. We don't look to them in the same way that we look to Christ. The heroes of the faith are sinners. They are sinful men and sinful women. But we find encouragement in the fact that God worked in the lives of these sinful men and women and that They endured suffering, hardship, and trials, yet remained faithful to the Lord. One example I've mentioned before is Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon was an English minister and preacher who was born in 1759. At a young age, he became the pastor of Trinity Church in Cambridge. But the thing was, the congregation did not want him to be their pastor. They wanted a different man, Mr. Hammond. To be their minister. And so Charles Simeon was willing to step back. He's willing to say, okay, well, I don't have to be the pastor if they don't want me. But the thing was, the congregation did not actually have the authority to choose their ministers in the Anglican church. It was the bishop who had the authority to choose their minister. And so Charles Simeon was willing to step back. He was willing to say, okay, they don't want me. I don't need to do this. But the bishop said to him, listen, even if you step back, I'm not going to give the position to Mr. Hammond. So it was basically they were going to get Charles Simeon or some other minister they didn't want. So Charles Simeon said, okay, well, I guess I'll do it. And so he took the position, began to preach the word, but the congregation was so opposed to Charles Simeon's uh, leadership, to him serving as their pastor, that they did not show up on Sunday mornings to the services. Moreover, they locked the pews to prevent other people from coming and hearing the preaching of the word. Now this sounds completely foreign to us. What do you mean locked the pews? They had pews with little doors at the end that could be locked, and the members of the church owned the pews. And so they had the, they could go in and lock the doors at the end of the pews so that other people could not go and use the pews that they owned. This was the opposition that Charles Simeon faced when he preached the word. At Trinity Church. And this went on and on and on. He even brought in his own chairs at his own expense to put in the in the aisleways in the back to get people a chance, other people, a chance to come in and sit down and hear the word preached. But the church wardens had those chairs thrown out. They did like the opposite of what a deacon does. Mike Ray, who's one of our deacons of facility, was here on Friday resetting all the chairs so that you could sit down and hear the word preached. These church wardens did the opposite of that. They threw the chairs out so that people literally could not come and hear the preaching of the word. Imagine this. A congregation preventing others from hearing the faithful preaching of God's word. This might dissuade a minister from continuing on In this position. Well, Charles Simeon Simeon continued on year after year after year. Ten years after he began, there was a court ruling that said that these pew holders could no longer lock the pews. Ten years. But here's the thing John Piper writes, he didn't use it, he didn't use this court ruling. He let his steady, relentless ministry of the word and prayer and community witness gradually overcome the resistance. And eventually, he succeeded in overcoming the resistance. More than 10 years of this, finally he was able to push through and people began to come and hear the preaching of the word and he ended up pastoring in that church for 54 years and had an incredibly fruitful, profound ministry marked by the faithful exposition of God's word and the proclamation of the gospel. And his legacy continues today. Patient, endurance, faithfulness encourages us to continue on even when we face opposition. Well, last week in our passage... In the book of Hebrews, we saw that the author of Hebrews paused an argument that he was making regarding the priesthood of Jesus. If you remember, the author of Hebrews was making an argument that the priesthood of Jesus is superior to the Levitical priesthood under the old covenant. He was making this argument to the Christians to whom he was writing because they were Jewish Christians, and they were tempted to go back to their old way of life Under the old covenant. And he was saying, Don't go back. Don't go back to the old covenant. Don't go back to the old way because everything under the old covenant points to and finds its fulfillment in Jesus. That would be foolish to go back. And so he was making this argument that the priesthood of Jesus is superior to the Levitical priesthood. But we saw in our passage last week that he paused this argument. He stopped for a moment. He said, Wait. I need to speak to you. I need to address your condition, your present state. And he had some hard words. He had some hard words for these Christians because they were not maturing. They were not growing in the faith as they ought. So he said, Listen, you still need milk. You should be eating solid food like a grown up, but you need milk like an infant. That's not good. You need to grow. You need to progress and mature in the faith. And he issued a warning. He said, Listen, those who fall away from the gospel, from the church, are going to face a severe judgment. So he had a hard word, he had a word of warning, but then he also gave them words of encouragement. In verses 9 through 12 of chapter 6, he offered words of encouragement to the Christians to whom he was writing. He was confident that they would not be those who fall away and reject Christ. And he was confident because of their love and service to other Christians in the name of Jesus. He saw the way that they loved and served their brothers and sisters in Christ for the sake of Christ. And he said, I'm confident that you are going to continue on in the faith. And he urged them to be earnest and not sluggish. And he urged them to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In our passage today, chapter 6, verses 13 through 20, we see the nature of God's promises, what we have, and what we need. So I'm actually going to read chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, and go through 20, I want to reread verses 9 through 12 just to remind us of what comes right before our passage and to see how these verses lead into our passage today. So I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 9 through verse 20. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. First, our text teaches us about the nature of God's promises. After encouraging Christians to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises in verse 12, he provided an illustration and an example of this in verses 13 through 15. He called to memory God's promise to Abraham. And he was referencing Genesis chapter 22. But what we need to keep in mind are the events that preceded Genesis chapter 22. Back in Genesis chapter 12, we read how God first called Abraham and made him great and glorious promises. One of the things that he promised Abraham was to make a great nation out of him, meaning Abraham was going to have many descendants. And he was going to make a great nation out of him, eventually we find, through his son Isaac. But what's amazing is that between the time, the time between when God made that promise and when Isaac was born was 25 years God made that promise when Abraham was 75 and Isaac was born when he was 100. Abraham had to wait. He had to be patient. He had to persevere through doubts. But he did. He was patient and he persevered and he believed God. And then, after Isaac was born, God did something shocking. In Genesis chapter 22, he called to Abraham and said, I want you to take your son, Isaac, and offer him as a sacrifice. Can you imagine what Abraham was thinking when the Lord said this to him? Why in the world would I do something that is evil and also contrary to the promise you have made me? This was utterly shocking. And yet what we read is that Abraham obeyed. Abraham did what the Lord commanded him even when there was no way it made sense to Abraham. Even though it would cause him immense pain and sorrow. He obeyed. He took his son and he went to the place where God commanded him to offer him as a sacrifice. Isaac started looking around and realized there was a problem. He realized something was missing, namely the sacrifice. And so he said to his father, we have the fire, we have the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. It's one of those moments where Abraham did not realize how profound those words were. <laughs> he said something that had profound meaning that ultimately pointed to the sacrifice of Christ. So we know the story. Abraham got right up to the moment where he was going to kill his son and God intervened and said, Stop. Don't do it. You passed the test. You were faithful. You obeyed me even when it did not make sense, even when it was costly to you even when it was painful you obeyed and then we read at the end of chapter 22 what the lord said to him after this in verses 15 through 18 we read and the angel of the lord called to abraham a second time from heaven and said by myself i have sworn declares the lord because you have done this and have not withheld your son your only son i will surely bless you And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God promised to bless Abraham and multiply his offspring. And when he made the promise, he said, By myself I have sworn... The author of Hebrews picks up on this in chapter 6, verse 13, where he writes that since God had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. When people want to settle a matter, they swear by something greater than themselves, which serves as final confirmation. The author is describing a legal guarantee of a testimony's truthfulness. Confirmation of the truth is the heart of the matter how do we know that someone is going to keep their word how do we know that someone's going to fulfill their obligation how do we know that someone's going to keep their promise well when someone swears and makes a legally binding oath that helps it helps when someone swears by someone greater than themselves in such a way that they are bound by that oath Now, we need to remember that God is not obligated to us. God does not owe it to us to make an oath. He doesn't need to prove himself to us. He is the creator. We are the creatures. We are the ones who owe him everything. But he owes us nothing. Yet, he desired to show the heirs of the promise more convincingly the unchangeable character, the unchanging character uh, character nature of his purpose so that he guaranteed it with an oath. The two unchangeable things are God's word and God's oath. Tom Schreiner writes, God's word is irrevocable, but his oath will never be rescinded either. God's word alone is sufficient for faith since he never deviates from the truth. Nevertheless, he adds to his word his oath. The oath is not given to substantiate God's truthfulness, since he can't lie. The oath was given then for the sake of human beings, to underscore God's faithfulness. He did so for our sake. He did so because we are weak. He did so because we're prone to doubt. We are prone to unbelief. And so in, our, in his kindness, he sought to encourage us through making an oath. The nature of God's promises is that they are certain. The Lord is faithful, and therefore what he promises will be fulfilled. He always does what he says. He is trustworthy and true. The author of Hebrews sought to encourage the believers to whom he was writing by reminding them and impressing on them God's faithfulness. He wanted to encourage them and comfort them in this way. Though you may suffer now, though the Lord may seem slow to fulfill his promise, he will deliver. He is faithful. You can take that to the bank. What about you? Are you convinced of the Lord's faithfulness? Can you personally testify that the Lord is faithful? What does the Lord's faithfulness mean to you? How does it shape your life? The Lord is faithful. And brothers and sisters, that is good news for us. Next we see what we have the fact that god does not lie that he is faithful to his promises that his purposes do not change means that we have something that no one and nothing can take from us we have hope back in hebrews chapter 2 verse 16 we read for surely it is not angels that he helps but he helps the offspring of abraham the offspring of Abraham is not limited to Jewish Christians, but to all who trust in Christ for their salvation. How so? Well, as Paul argued in Romans chapter 4 verses 9 through 12, Abraham is the father of all those who walk in the footsteps of faith. And in Galatians chapter 3 verse 7, Paul writes, "Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham." So, when this passage talks about the heirs of the promise, it is referring to all of us who believe in Christ. All those who have believed in Christ, including us, are the offspring of Abraham and are therefore the heirs of the promise. We are the beneficiaries of what God promised. Abraham. God promised Abraham a good land, many offspring, a blessed life that would be a blessing to the world, and victory over his enemies. In Jesus, God did all the work necessary to bring these things to pass. He defeated Satan. He initiated the renewal of all things and commissioned his church To preach the gospel, that the world might be blessed through the addition of all nations to the family of Abraham. And now, those of us who are in Christ are the recipients of the promise. And there is an already but not yet aspect to the promises. On the one hand, we who are in Christ are the recipients of the promise but we have not yet experienced the full consummation of everything that God has promised. But we look forward to the day when we will enjoy the fullness of the blessing. God has given us a glorious picture of our, what our future will look like. He has given us a glorious picture of our future that we look forward to confidently because of his faithfulness. We see this in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, which says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is One writer said, when Jesus returns to usher in the new heavens and earth, the promises to Abraham will reach their consummation. As we are blessed with eternal life in a resurrected body, our enemies will be no more, and we will enjoy the presence of God forever. Let us put our hope in this inheritance and long for the days when all these things will come to pass. This is our hope. Our hope is in Christ and his kingdom, which will last for all of eternity, and we will enjoy all of the blessings that God promised to Abraham. This is not a pipe dream. This is not like hoping the Mariners will win the World Series. This is not like hoping your kid will earn a full-ride scholarship to college. This is not like hoping your candidate will win the election. It's not like any of these things can't happen, but you don't have no idea whether or not they will or not. This is not like that kind of hope. No, we have hope that is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. When we hope for things that may or may not come to pass, we tend to be anxious. Think about a time when you had to take an important test, and you hoped that you would do well, but going into that test, you were probably a little anxious, or maybe there was a time when you applied for a job that you hoped you would get, but maybe you were a little anxious as you waited to hear the results. We can think of examples of things that we hope for and the anxiety that accompanies that as we wait to find out if we're going to get what we hope for. But our hope in Christ and the fulfillment of God's promises come with no anxiety. And that is why our hope is described as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. The world is full of evil. The world is full of brokenness. The world is full of confusion and craziness. It's easy to be affected by all of this. It's easy for these things to overwhelm us, but we have a hope that serves as an anchor in the midst of the evil, the brokenness, the confusion, the chaos, the craziness. We have a hope that anchors us in the midst of the fiercest storms. We have this hope because God is faithful, and therefore, no one and nothing can take this hope from us. The Christians who were the original recipients of the letter of Hebrews experienced this firsthand. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, we read, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They suffered persecution, opposition, imprisonment, Some of them had their property taken from them. But what does the author of Hebrews say? You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Because your hope in something better. You have a possession, an inheritance that is far better than the best things this world has to offer. You can accept the plundering of your property because your inheritance cannot be plundered. It cannot be taken from you. So they knew firsthand the evils in this world. They knew firsthand the suffering, the hardships, the brokenness, the craziness, yet they had hope. They had hope. They knew that God is faithful. They knew they had a better possession and an abiding one. Bad things happen in this life. But our hope serves as an anchor when bad things happen. We can remind ourselves of who God is, what He's done for us, what He's promised, and we can take comfort in that. Alistair Begg writes When you face a crisis, you quickly discover where your hope is placed. If your faith rests on the promises of God, then your hope will be grounded in those promises, and it will not be disappointed that will abound through all the trials of life. If your hope is anything other than Christ and the promises of God, you will be tossed to and fro by the wind and the waves of this life. But the hope we have in Christ is an anchor. Not only so, but our hope enters the inner place behind the curtain because Jesus has gone before us as our forerunner and great high priest. The inner place refers to the most holy place in the tabernacle or temple, which was the special place of God's dwelling, the special place of his presence. And as we've seen under the old covenant, only the high priest was able to enter the most holy place. And even he was only able to do so once a year. What the author is saying here is that Jesus is our great high priest, And he has entered into the presence of God, the heavenly reality to which the tabernacle and the temple only pointed. He has gone before us into the presence of God. He has opened the way for us to enjoy God's presence. Our hope is certain. And our hope comes with the reality of God's presence. Finally, we see what we need. God is faithful to his promise. And as the offspring of Abraham through faith in Christ, we are the heirs of the promise. Therefore, we have hope that will not disappoint us, but serves as an anchor in the midst of life's storms. So what do we need to do? How do we respond to this? Sometimes the promise of God seems far off. Sometimes it seems distant. Sometimes the problems in our lives seem more real to us than God's promises. So what do we need to do in those moments? We need to hold fast and be patient. Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. He served as an example of what it looks like to be patient, to hold fast, to obey God, even when it is hard and costly. Following Jesus requires patiently holding fast to the truth of God's promise, which means we follow Jesus even when it is hard. We do what he commands even when it is costly. We need to patiently endure by holding fast to Christ in the gospel. Looking to the heroes of our faith can encourage us to this end. We can look to the heroes of the faith in the Bible. We can look to the heroes of of the faith in history. But we also have heroes of the faith among us. It is good for us to look to those who have endured. Those among us who have endured. We're going to do something a little bit different this morning as I'm going to ask one of our members, Colleen Brown, to come forward. I've asked her to share her testimony. I've asked her to share her testimony because she is someone who I believe is an example for us. Someone who has modeled endurance holding fast to the lord so she's going to take time to share with you her story her testimony before we wrap up our time in this passage
1: good morning church family does that sound okay okay um wow God has been incredibly faithful over my many, many years. And from my perspective now, I can look back and see just how he did have his hand on my life, even from a very young age. Um, I was born into a Catholic family. I was second of four kids. We lived in Central California, and my folks were so involved in this Catholic church. I went to Catholic school, and my hope in the world was to become a nun. My favorite thing to do was read saint biographies. (laughs) So eventually our family moved to central or southern California and by the time time I was a... excuse me... we had settled in with a new Catholic church there. When I was a teenager my mom developed cancer and she lived for a couple of years but that was very painful and difficult and when she died we just stopped going to church altogether. Um, I was, I knew Jesus. I believed in Jesus, but you know that's just you know who we were. Didn't mean we had to go to church. Mm-hmm. But um, as I became a teenager and started dating a young man who had visited John MacArthur's church in Southern California, he invited me to go. And when I heard the actual gospel presentation, for the really the first time I finally understood that this is not just believing that God exists that yeah I believe in Jesus and but understanding that he died for my sin but that requires a response from me I need to actually trust him with that commit my life to him and and follow him not just where I want to go and what I want to do so Tim and I did get married and we moved up here in 1979 he was an electrician and i was a nurse worked at the hospital um, we had been married almost 10 years and had not been able to conceive a child we had been to a couple different churches and we settled in with um, at a, a presbyterian church in america a church in little in lake stevens they were involved in the pro-life movement, and I got involved in that and helped. Um, be I was on the board of the first crisis pregnancy center in um, in Everett. It was really interesting. Um, that was the time I finally was able to conceive. <laughs> I know that God doesn't work that way, it's so cut and dried like that. But it was it was an amazing blessing after all those years of waiting. Um, At that church, we became good friends with a couple named um, Carl and Sharon. And um, when I was um, able to conceive, they were getting ready to move to California. We actually had a combination going away party and baby shower, which is a little odd, but very interesting when they had to move back later, about three years later, because of a failure on Carl's part and Sharon was so upset, she was completely freaked out, and she was afraid of him. She didn't want to stay with him, with her two daughters, and so the first thing that I did was offer to let her move in with us, without prayer, without talking to my husband about it, but to, de- to meet the desire of my, i got to fix this, I can do this. Um, Needless to say, that was a big disaster, and it wasn't very long before Tim and uh, Sharon developed a relationship. So things finally blew up, um, realized what was going on. He moved out. And then I got a knock on the door um, one evening in the middle of winter, it was so dark. um, It was a man bringing me divorce proceedings. The very odd thing, though, is that that same night, Sharon's husband, Carl, was killed in a car accident. So there was, these were traumatic events, and it was like um, I really had to lean on God. But he, he was there. Um, the divorce went through. Um, I moved with my daughter into an apartment in Marysville and leaned in, tried to lean into God. I started going to Bible study fellowship. And on my way down there, I was in Linwood at the time. So I was driving down I-5 in morning rush hour traffic. And across the freeway comes a mama duck with her little ducklings. And I'm thinking, oh, this is not going to go well. But she got across the road just, just fine. And God immediately said, that was for you, because I'm taking care of you just like I took care of that mama and her ducklings. So I went through many years of being a single parent. God had just kind of put on my heart that I wasn't gonna get remarried and, until Aaron was much older. But I did get involved again with more, uh, more things at church and um, a Moms in Touch group, it's a, a prayer group. And I was able, the, the way that God brought me through step by step, but with the help of the body of Christ, it is so crucial. To stay close to Christ through staying close to those who love Him. Um, finally, I did meet a, a wonderful man named Fred. Uh, I met him in January of 2001, and by August we were married. But by in March of 2004, he had drove he drove me to work, um, dropped me off, and didn't make it home. He died of a heart attack. I was Crushed. Um, I remember the drive. A a police officer came, picked me up from the hospital, and drove me home. I was devastated. I had that ache in my heart for months and months and months, uh, that broken heart. But at the same time, I also felt like I was in this bubble of that God protected me and He was holding me up, and I knew I was going to be okay. Um, I had to sell His house because I um, couldn't we, I couldn't afford to stay there. Um, somebody helped me find a Christian real estate agent who said, well, I've never tried to do a short sale and help buy a house at the exact same time, but we'll see what happens. And God was faithful. I have a beautiful home. I'm still there. Um, and, again, um, I was uh, just trying to lean on the Lord, but... Um, oh, sorry, (laughs) there came a time when I I was doing my Bible study in the morning, God, I just felt so clearly, God was saying, I want you to hold on, get ready, there are big changes coming into your life, okay, God, and this happened three or four days in a row, it was just so strong, so I started making myself ready, and the first thing that happened was a dear friend introduced me, uh, brought me to church at Damascus Road, when it was still a very small church, and meeting at a school in Marysville, I, it was amazing, that was just like, this is my home here, my church home, it was wonderful. And then I started thinking, well maybe it's time for me to start dating, I went on eHarmony, I met Charlie Brown, who was a wonderful, wonderful man, crazy, kind of guy I would never have thought of, would be my type. But, his amazing faith and the stories that he told about how God had worked in his life really won me over and we had five, six wonderful years before he was diagnosed with dementia Charlie had a beautiful voice and he had the type of dementia that um, attacked his speech and it was like at first, okay God, we'll we'll get through this um, we had started coming to Restoration Road, and um, we did fine for a couple of years, but then he started to get worse, and I started to just struggle and struggle. I um, just got so angry at God after everything I've been through already. How can you do this to me? Of course, it's about me. <laughs> but the thing that I love about God is even while I was angry and yelling at him, I knew that it, this was no problem for him. He can take it when people yell and scream at him. He just wants us to be honest with him. And so I then, I was able to find an amazing Christian counselor who helped me so much. Um, we ended up, the, the drive to Snohomish got to be too much for me, so we came back to Damascus Road in Marysville. and. I hooked up with um, a discipleship group um, a group of women who I'm still with and they're so wonderful um, my friend Mary um, well that comes later <laughs> um, so one of the big things that I was really worried about was how am I going to care for Charlie I knew eventually he would have to go in, into care so where was I how was I going to find that how is that going to work out I started looking, the second place I found on the very first day I started to look um, was a place right in Marysville that was still being built. I went and talked to the administrator, a wonderful Christian man. Their program was amazing, and it was like, God, if this is an answer to prayer, nothing is. It was just like amazing. So I had a lot more peace after that, and that was in November of uh, 2019. So of course, 2020 comes along and it's COVID. The support systems I had in place to give me a a break to get away from the house and taking care of Charlie, I had retired early from work, fell apart. And he went. He started going downhill so much faster when we couldn't visit with people and go bowling. And um, so he was one of the very first residents when this place opened up in Marysville in, in March of that year. Um, at that time, my friend Mary helped me, um, she invited me to join a Bible study of hers, which now I had time I could do. So my I had support groups in two or three Bible studies, and oh, um, Charlie died in October of that same year. The grief process that I went through, God brought me to a book. Uh, it's called Every Moment Holy. This was volume two about Hope, about loss, grief, death, and hope. It's a book of prayers. And one of the prayers in it talked about the stewardship of grief. And it was like this big light bulb went on. It's like, wow, what is what does that mean? And I came to understand it's like grief is something that God gives you to do something with. It's meant to change you, to heal you, and t- to allow you to give The glory back to him which is what happened Um, and since in the two years now that Charlie's been gone um, and I've come back to Restoration Road and gotten more involved in the church um, I, I can't it's amazing I have read so many more books now and the time I spend with the Lord I'm learning about what this sanctification process really is and it's it's hard work and you can't do it alone. The church body is so important, and that is God's faithfulness in action because he works through each of you to help everyone else. So um, to God be the glory, and thank you.
0: Colleen's testimony is so encouraging and convicting, and one of the things that strikes me is that her testimony is not, woe is me. Look how hard my life has been. Her testimony is, God is faithful. God is faithful. I'm so grateful for your example you provide for all of us. That is a gift, brothers and sisters. What a gift to have this type of example of what it looks like to follow Christ, to hold on to him, to press into the church, Even when you experience suffering, hardship, and and, and pain. That is a commendable example. What a gift calling you are to us and the children that you teach on Sunday mornings. How awesome is that to have our children being taught to such an incredible woman of faith? That is a precious gift. And, brothers and sisters, I hope we're encouraged. I hope we're encouraged and reminded of God's faithfulness. Bad things happen in this life, there will be trials, there will be hardship, there will be sorrow. But that does not mean that God is not faithful. Indeed, God is faithful. And therefore, we need to hold fast to Him, to cling to the hope that we have in Christ. We need to be patient and persevere. We will be rewarded as we do so. We always must look to Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, your kindness to us, making such sweet and precious promises, knowing that you are true to your word. So we pray that our hope in you will serve as an anchor in our lives in the midst of all the storms. We pray that we will be those who hold fast, who patiently endure, And we thank you for this, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.